0: And so how do we stoke that flame? If that's an expectancy that we are meant to have all of our days, how do we fuel and fan that flame? Well, one of the ways that the church has done this is by setting aside time every year to say, at this time, we are going to stoke that fire. We are going to fan that flame on purpose. Something that is true, we've we've mentioned this recently in accordance with prayer, uh, but it is true of all of our lives. It It is just a truism, it is wisdom, and it is true. We do that which we plan to do, and that which we do not plan to do,
1: we do not
0: do. And so you can look at your own life and you can look at the trajectory of your life. And you can see the things that you have done and you can see the things that you thought you would do that you haven't done. And there is really one reason and one reason only for those things that you did and those things that you did not do. The things that you did, you planned to do them. And those things that you didn't do, no matter how much you thought you might do them, you didn't actually make a plan to do them. I hate
1: to to
0: wreck your life, but that really is uh, the sum of it all. We do those things that we plan to do, and we can have good intentions for all sorts of other things. Uh, my life is filled uh, right now with all kinds of projects that are left undone because at this point in time, I've not yet made a plan to actually do them. I have every intention of doing them, but until there is a plan. They remain undone. Right? And, and so, it's all well and good to say, well, we should be celebrating the incarnation every day. You know what? You're right. We really should. It should be something that, that really is at the forefront of our thoughts and our worship and our devotion all throughout the year. You're right. It, it really should. It should be something that we should consider, that we should contemplate, that we should think about. Well, we should be excited about the second coming of the Lord every day. You are right. You are 100% right. Uh, How, how are we going to do that? And that's where uh, practically having time set aside every year where we can stoke that fire and fan that flame becomes incredibly practical to our worship and our devotion. And so, uh, I'm grateful uh, for this time that we can plan to do this together. We can plan to fan this flame, to stoke this fire, to stir up our affections, as it were, uh, for the coming of our Lord. And, and so, as we look ahead at where we are going, uh, one of the first things that we all understand Uh, subconsciously, even if not consciously, that whenever you need to get your bearings, if you are heading somewhere and you find yourself in a position of needing to collect uh, yourself and gain your bearings, one of the very first things that you do, whether you think about it or not, is often this. Or if you're driving, it looks like this. You may pull off. And what do you do? You, you check the rear view mirror. You look behind you. Because you're trying to get your Okay, this is where I am. Where is here? In order for me to understand where here is, I need to know where I've come from. And so even subconsciously, if not consciously, we understand that in order to get our bearings, often what we need to do is we need to look back. And so the early church, in anticipating the coming of Jesus and his second coming in the second parousia, they said one of the ways we can gain our bearings and enter into this time of expectancy is to look back at his first coming. To enter into the anticipation and the expectancy that our forebears had as they awaited his first advent, his first coming the first parousia. And that's how Advent, in anticipation of the second coming of Christ, began to be associated with the first coming and with the celebration of what we commonly call Christmas, or or really just the celebration of the Incarnation. And so during this time of Advent, as we anticipate what is to come, We also are invited to look back, to look back to the first advent and to enter into the anticipation and the expectancy of that moment in order to prepare ourselves and get ready for the second coming of Jesus Christ. And and, and what's one of the first things that we recognize? We go back and we want to look at the incarnation. Where do we need to go? We go back to the, the gospel. Matthew being the first one uh, in the, the structure of the Bible that is given to us today. And there's a gap. There's a gap between the last book of the Old Testament and the first book of the New Testament. Now, it's probably in your Bible represented just by a page. But in history, that page, that gap, is over 400 years. 400 years of, for lack of a better term, silence. Darkness in terms of revelation. Quiet. A void. If you will. A void before the new creation. Even as there was a void before creation. And what was happening in that void? If we go back to Genesis, we see that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void, but something was going on in the void, was And it says, and the Spirit hovered over the face of the deep. That word in the Hebrews is is where we get an understanding of incubation. That hovering is like an incubation. If you have ever spent any time uh, with farm animals or raising chickens, we have this thing called an incubator in the incubator, the, the, the little eggs go inside where it's nice and warm. Well, what is that meant to be uh, mimicking? It's meant to be mimicking a mother hen sitting over, hovering over her baby chips. And while she is sitting there keeping them warm, there is a mysterious and wonderful, uh, almost mystical, magical thing that is happening, where if she didn't do that, we could crack open one of those eggs and just get white and yolk, and yet because she is, God is, is causing what is inside of there to take form. What was formless takes form, takes shape, comes to life. That's what the spirit was here in this void between Old and New Testament. Before the coming of the Messiah, we understand that there was also something that was going on as the spirit was not inactive, but active. Though there was silence, though there was darkness in terms of revelation. That does not mean that God took a vacation. God was not absent. God was not absent. The Spirit was not inactive, but rather, likewise, was hovering over that darkness, hovering over that space and that void in preparation of the coming of the Messiah. And so during this time, we look back To the first advent and enter into that anticipation. Remember the people of Israel who have suffered so much at this point at the end of the close of the Old Testament. They have been in bondage and released. They have been uh, taken away captive and brought back home. Their homes and their temple have been destroyed and rebuilt. They've gone through so much. And there is a yearning at the end of the Old Testament. There is an anticipation at the end of the Old Testament for the Messiah, the one who was foretold. That the babe born of a virgin to come and to set them free. And so we are invited to enter into that anticipation and expectancy of that moment. in order to prepare ourselves to get ready for the second coming. Of Christ it is meant to be a calm before the storm so to speak of great rejoicing and excitement as we purposely set time aside to celebrate the Incarnation together collectively in community where we purposely slow down and reorient our lives and focus in on the glory of the coming of Jesus it is a time of fasting, uh, which is interesting when you think about all of those Advent calendar things where you can open up and take out chocolate, or my favorite, a beer, um, a new beer for every day of Advent, uh, kind of, uh, well, wait a minute, I I think we're missing the point here. It's meant to be a time to refocus. And so for many, it is a time of fasting, of reflection, of repentance, and interesting as it deals with what we've been talking about most recently, a time of prayer. A cheerful and joyful vigil of sorts, which is the picture I really want you to have in your minds this afternoon as we complete our series on the Lord's Prayer and begin our season of Adam. A cheerful and joyful vigil. As we've been looking at this prayer that Jesus taught His disciples to pray, Prayer that is commended to us as a model to prayer, meaning that we take the the components of the prayer and we use them as a tool, as it were, to enliven and to enrich our own prayer, to look at the structure of the prayer, how Jesus included some things before other things. As we look at the attitude of the prayer, how his, his, his heart is geared in a certain direction, what is that direction? It's a direction that will come uh, later in Matthew chapter six, verse thirty-three. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. That is, that is a posture, if you will, of, of a life. It is a posture that we can take in prayer, where our immediate and primary focus is not merely on the list of the things that we want God to do for us, but rather. Primarily, allowing our hearts and our minds to be drawn to those things that we know God that it has his focus upon. And so Jesus leads us to pray first of all, what? Your kingdom comes. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In fact, even before that, hallowed be your name, that the name of God would be exalted above all else. And so we look at this prayer, and that's a way that we can use it as a model. But it's also, as we've talked about uh, previously, early on in the series, uh, a, a kind of um, a baby tool for us in so many ways. Even as the ABCs are used for children who cannot read yet. In fact, a child who can recite the ABCs, we, we actually have no expectation uh, when they first are able to recite ABCs, yeah. that they would be able to in any form or fashion take those, those 26 different letters and put them into words or sentences or paragraphs or anything of the sort. We are expecting them to just take on uh, this structure that will really only make sense for them later, but they can learn it and it's helpful them. In fact, it can be helpful for us as well. If you've ever had to think about where something is in the alphabet, even as an adult, uh, I, I would I would wager good money uh, that you might find yourself singing a little tune that, interestingly enough, uh, is the same as "Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star." You know, know that. Think about it. Sing so, it. We'll figure it out. Um, it's, a, it's a helpful tool and if we want to learn how to pray uh, it is helpful for us to yeah. go back to it and, yeah. and, and so it is a helpful tool to memorize it is a, and, and, and not just to memorize for recitation but to truly from your heart pray the Lord's Prayer as it is But as I said, it's also a tool to enliven our own prayers by which our soul converses with God. Now you'll notice that in our text in the ESV this morning, in verse number 13, so Matthew 6, sorry, I turned back to Matthew 1. Matthew 6, verse 13, that in the ESV, it ends abruptly with, but deliver us from evil. And that's it. That's all that's in the text. In the ESV for us yeah. at the end of our prayer, but you may see there may be a note at the end of verse thirteen, perhaps noted by a letter or a number or even an asterisk. Some note in your Bible by that verse, which will give the following translated translator's note or something like it, uh, something similar. Mine says, for example, some manuscripts add, "For yours is the kingdom." And the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, if we were reading from the King James Version of the Bible this afternoon, there would be no asterisks, there would just be included in verse 13 For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. This is what is called a textual variant. Textual variant, uh, meaning that some of our oldest manuscripts have variants where some include this ending and some do not. So if you did not know this, uh, we uh, really do not have like a first century complete New Testament altogether, Matthew through Revelation without uh, being broken apart or in fragments at all. In fact, what we have is hundreds, if not thousands, of fragments of the New Testament, some that are kept together and some that are broken apart in pieces. In fact, some even of the pages have parts of the pages missing. And But because we have so many, as I said, literally hundreds and thousands, of these different manuscript parts. The way we understand what we have today as the New Testament is by taking the preponderance of all those pieces together and evaluating and looking at them and seeing where they line up and have the exact same wording. Believe it or not, the amount of those that have the exact same wording we're talking about manuscripts that have been hand copied. This is incredible. Hand copied. And the amount of them that match up completely is, is just incredible. In terms of, of ancient manuscripts, it is a it is miracle. There, it is miraculous, actually, how many we have that just line up completely. Um, Whereas we have other books that we hold today, nobody ever talks about any of these other books because they don't care and it really doesn't matter. Uh, Where the variance in the different copies of different manuscripts we have of extra biblical books is is unreal. Uh, And even where we have, uh, take something like Homer's uh, Iliad or Odyssey. And... The, the uh, birth dates, so to speak, of the manuscripts that we have are something like 900 years removed from the original uh, text of Homer's Iliad and Odyssey. That That's unreal, almost a thousand years. We have manuscripts that date into the early first centuries of the New Testament, but we don't necessarily have one complete copy. And some of those copies do have what are called variants. They vary uh, in very small details. Some very famous variants are full sections. One of those you would recognize is is, uh, has to do with the woman caught in adultery in the book of John, where that is a whole section uh, that in some texts is included and in some it is not. And so here, in the Lord's Prayer, we have one of these variants, okay? And so I tell you all of that just to make it clear that there's something going on, going on with the text here. Now, I am, not, uh, I am not an expert in textual criticism. So textual criticism is the study of these different variants. Okay, and I'm not a, an expert in textual criticism. and We're not here today to debate whether it should or should not be included in the text of Scripture. Uh, you will find, uh, if you desire to, to delve into this at all, you will find that there is great debate and great emotion on either side of that argument on whether or not uh, it should be included or not. What I am going to do is I'm just going to note some interesting things before we get to the importance of these words. First, it is interesting to note that in this particular case, it is actually the Greek manuscripts that
1: include the longer ending in Matthew, and some in Luke,
0: but rarely in Luke. Now we already know, because we've looked at both Luke 11 and Matthew 6, that the version of the Lord's Prayer in Luke 11 is much shorter and truncated than the version that we've been looking at in Matthew 6. But some of the Greek uh, versions of Luke also include the longer ending, but very few. Whereas in Matthew, which is already we know a longer version of the Lord's Prayer, many of the older Greek manuscripts include uh, this longer part. However, on some of the oldest ones, they do not. And so it was the Latin translator, Jerome, who did not trust the Greek manuscripts that did include the longer part in Matthew, and his reasoning was because so few of the Luke uh, uh, manuscripts did include it. And so because of that, he didn't trust it In the Greek, and so he chose to leave it out of the Latin translation. And that's why, to this day, uh, you will find that Roman Catholics are not prone to include the longer ending in their recitation of the Lord's Prayer. The longer ending is, however, included in what's called the Didache. Uh, The Didache is one of the earliest Christian writings that we have outside of the New Testament. In fact, the, the, the manuscripts of the Didache that we have actually date many of the manuscripts of the New Testament that we have. And it is included in the Didache. Didache is a, a Greek word which literally means the teaching. Uh, it's also been referred to as the teaching of the apostles. And this is a first or second century writing. That is most like what we would today call a book of church order. Um, many, many denominations will have what they call a book of church order, which gives them direction as to how um, church is meant to be, how their liturgical services are meant to be observed, uh, how they're supposed to observe the church calendar, how discipline is meant to be conducted, how membership is meant to be conducted, all of those kinds of things. And the Didache is is basically akin to something like that, a book of church order, or something like the Book of Common Prayer that's used by the Anglican Church. And the Didache has been instrumental uh, for us uh, in understanding, helping us understand the teaching and the worship of the early church. You, You might wonder how do people know what they were doing? way back in the 1st or 2nd century well, It's, it's actually it's from the dedicate that we actually get a lot of that information. And the way that the Didache includes the longer part of the Lord's Prayer is helpful for us to understand that from a very early date, Christians were in the practice of ending their prayers, not just the Lord's Prayer, but their prayers in general, including the Lord's Prayer, with doxology and with worship. Now, I want to note something that we haven't really talked about yet in Matthew's Gospel. We haven't talked about it yet because uh, the placement of the Lord's Prayer in the Sermon on the Mount hasn't really been something we've been focusing on. But something that we need to understand about Matthew's Gospel and about the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, contrary uh, to the um, <laughs> I'm sorry. Contrary to the film adaptations of the life and ministry of Jesus uh, that we get mostly from uh, the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, the Sermon on the Mount, as we refer to it, is not necessarily one sermon that Jesus preached once upon a time, in one place in time, up on a mountain. Matthew gives it this narrative to help the structure of his letter. And so, in Matthew's gospel, you have a very narrative fashion of his gospel account. But what we understand from reading all of Matthew's gospel, and Mark, and Luke, and John, is that it didn't necessarily happen the way that Matthew. It. Really, what's happening in the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew is taking a collection of all of Jesus' teaching and he's kind of um, condensing it, and the best way to understand it is distilling it into one sort of sermon so that we have a representation of, of all these different things that Jesus taught. In fact, we understand from the Gospels that Jesus didn't set up shop in one place and go to one place day after day and preach there every day. Rather, what did he do? He traveled throughout all of Judea preaching the gospel. And as he would come into a different place, it is very likely that the things that he preached yesterday in Bethany, he might preach today in Bethsaida or in this, in Nazareth, or in this other place, as he would travel, many of the things that he had taught in these other places, he would teach here as he would come into a new area. And so uh, Matthew is giving us a representation of all the, the, the sum of Jesus' teaching in what we now today call the Sermon on the Mount. Now, why does that matter? It matters because it is likely that the Lord's prayer is similar to that. That Jesus didn't necessarily just teach the disciples how to pray once. But throughout his three years of ministry, there were perhaps many times that Jesus was teaching his disciples how to pray And that what we have in the Lord's prayer is the summation of that teaching. This is how the Lord taught us to pray. And so it's interesting for us to look at that, to think about that, and and to see how we can glean from Matthew's gospel the way in which Jesus uh, was teaching them all of these things, not just once. And praise God, it wasn't just once. Um, if you've ever played the, the game telephone, uh, you can or you can understand how dangerous that might be. Um, and, and there are those who have lampooned that idea uh, in in uh, in many recent decades. But the idea that, that if Jesus only taught this once, I really hope you were paying attention. I, I really hope that you were close enough to really hear, so that you didn't have to be the guy going, "Hey, hey, what
1: kind of?" Song?
0: But these things were were on repeat, so to speak, in Jesus' ministry and his teaching. And so we have them faithfully represented to us in the Gospel accounts. And it's interesting to look at Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and see both the similarities and the differences that all four of those Gospels have. So much so that the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke... Are always lumped together, and John's Gospel is left out in its own category because there is so much difference between John's Gospel account and the other three. Uh, and and there is it, it, it's an amazing thing. There is so much alike, so many things that they hold in common, so much so that many believe that Mark's Gospel was written first, and that both Matthew and Luke used. Mark's gospel in creating a structure for their own accounts. Uh, whether or not that is true is, is up for debate. We don't really know. We weren't there, but there's so much similarity there that it seems like that is perhaps what happened. But then you also have these differences where you can see Matthew writing for a predominantly Jewish uh, uh, audience and Luke writing for a predominantly Greek audience. And there are differences even, uh, and, and this is, I'm kind of geeking out now, I'm sorry. When you talk about Jesus either being up on a mount or down at the bottom of a mount, is the difference between a Jewish and a Greek perspective. And you'll see that in Matthew, the representations of what was going on. Uh, and it's part of what actually gives, gives um, uh, credibility to these different accounts. Uh, We've talked about this before, but I'll just mention it again before we move on. If you were in a court of law and you had uh, four different people come up and give an account of their testimony of what they witnessed of one thing that happened. If they all got up and said exactly the same exact thing, that is reason to throw it all away. Because those witnesses are actually untrustworthy, and it would be what is called a coached witness. And it means that they are regurgitating something they been instructed to say, or have come together to collectively say, rather than giving a true account from their own perspective. And even as we all know, if something happened in this room, where you are sitting in the room, how far away you are from the epicenter of what happened, who's in front of you, how much noise is going on, and how much lighting there is where you are based on where something happened. All of that will cause when we come together and we had to give an account for what we saw, think, and heard happen, there would be variance in our accounts based upon our perspective. And each of the different gospel accounts show that very perspective, and that actually gives credibility to their um, validity. Um, but let's leave that aside for now. I just simply want to uh, make one more uh, observation. At the end of John's gospel, in John chapter 21, verse 25, It says, now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose, that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And and so John gives witness and testimony that there was no way uh, for him or anybody else to record everything that Jesus did. Uh, One of the things that we find in the gospel accounts is that each of them with the exception of Mark is the length, a very similar length, and that length, believe it or not, is about the length of one scroll. And so, in other words, there was only so much uh, uh, real estate on a scroll to give uh, room to write these things. And scrolls were expensive. And so, They needed to be able to fit in a certain amount of space. And so what John is giving testimony to is that, hey, guys, there are certain things Jesus did, awesome things, wonderful things. Wish I could tell you about them. I've run out of room. And even if I had more room, if I had enough room to fill all the books in the world, John says, I don't think that would be enough to tell you all the things that Jesus did. Uh, this goes without saying that if this is true of the things that Jesus did, it is also true of the things that Jesus said as well. What we do know is that it was not only early Christians who were prone to end their prayers with doxology, it was the common Jewish practice as well. And as the first Christians were Jews, it
1: would be very unlikely
0: for them to leave off the practice of Of ending their prayers with doxology, but rather what we see is them incorporating praise and doxological worship, glory being given to the God that they are praying for at the end of their prayers. And so while there is some question as to whether or not Jesus included this particular uh, longer ending in his teaching of this prayer, The words in the conclusion to the prayer uh, are certainly biblical and fitting and seem to be lifted from the text of Scripture itself. So I want to show you that. If you'll turn to the Old Testament, to 1 Chronicles chapter 29, I want you just simply to observe here. And
1: I'll
0: ask preemptively you notice anything familiar? First Chronicles chapter twenty-nine, and we're going to look and begin at verse number ten. David is praying. This is at the dedication of the temple. It would help if I was in First Chronicles. First Chronicles chapter twenty-nine. Beginning in verse 10. I'm sorry, this is not the dedication. It's before the temple is being built. And David has called the people to come and give offerings so that the temple can be built. And David prays at that time. Beginning in verse 10. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, and the power, and the glory, and the victory, and the majesty, for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it it is to make great to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) It is very familiar, and so it is likely um, that, uh, well, it is likely that a couple of things, that one, Jesus and the disciples were prone to pray in this way. It is also likely uh, that this is where the ending, if it was not uttered by Jesus is likely here that the, that doxology was lifted from, inserted as a form uh, to pray for uh, in the early church. So as we model our prayers on Jesus' teaching, it is also right and fitting that we would include those other instructions from Scripture which do help us to lift up our hearts to the Lord in prayer, uh, those things which do also help us in our own thinking. As we pray. And so I would say to you that the inclusion of, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Is helpful for us in our prayer. That, that whether or not we're praying the, the, the words of the Lord's Prayer uh, or in our own prayers, to include. In our prayer, and as an ending of our prayer, a kind of doxology, a kind of closing to our prayer that gives honor and glory to Him to whom honor and glory is, due, is right and fitting and helpful for us in our own thinking. Because it is in the conclusion of our prayer that the enemy would love to come and sneak in and say... Why should God do this for you? These things that you've just prayed about, these things that you've just asked God for, why in the world should God do them for you? For what are we to conclude that the strength or the receptivity of our prayers will be based on? I say this and I bring up again what I mentioned before, that many people will come to me. Pastor, please, will you pray for me? Will you pray this for me? Again, I am overjoyed and happy to pray with people. One of the things that I have tried to do is that whenever, and many of you know this because you've experienced it, when you come and you ask me for prayer, I will not merely say, yes, I will pray for you. But often I will say, let's pray now. And we'll pray right then and there, uh, together, asking the Lord for these things that you are asking for. But the problem is, is that many people come and they ask me to pray for them. And I can I see, I can perceive by the way they ask me that they are wanting me to pray for them because somehow they think my prayers are stronger or somehow get a, a quicker, better audience from our king than theirs do. And nothing could be further from the truth. And beloved, you need to understand this. Again, I love praying for you. Please come. Ask me to pray for you. I will pray for you. But please do not think that somehow my prayers are better or stronger or received more readily by our King than yours. And if you would end your prayers, with this kind of doxological praise to God, I think it might be helped in believing that. Because when we end our prayer by saying, for thine is the kingdom and the glory, or excuse me, and the power and the glory forever and ever, what we are saying is that our hope of our prayers being answered Are not dependent upon us, but rather are entirely dependent upon the one to whom we are praying, who has the authority, the kingdom, and the ability, the power, and the glory. It is the glory of a kingdom. It is God's glory that is in question. He extends his grace, as Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2. And so we can say with glory, there is affection for his people. He is the one who has the authority, who has the ability, who has the affection to actually intervene in our lives and grant those things that we are requesting.
1: And none of it is predicated upon us.
0: Now there are those who would say that when we come and we make our request before God, that there may be penance that we need to uh,
1: offer before those prayers can be received.
0: Now I'll be a little bit facetious here and a little bit antagonistic for fun, but those are the same people that <laughs> leave off. for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory
1: forever and ever. Amen. <laughs> now
0: again, I'm not making a case for whether or not this should be included in the text. But what I am saying is that ending our prayers Praise to the one who is able. Praise to the one prayer at that very moment where the enemy would love to sneak in and say, why should God do this for you? The answer is not for me, but for his own name's sake.
1: That the strength
0: and receptivity of our prayers will be based on on what is good in us. No. On how well we pray. If we included every part of the Lord's prayer or not. And, and church, please, I, this is meant to be a tool to help you, not a chain to enslave you in your prayers. So that you don't have to go through back through your prayer and go, oh, did I did I structure that exactly right? Did I say? Did I hit every part of the Lord's prayer? That's not the point of this. It's meant to be a tool to help you, not a chain to enslave you. So that even when we get to the end of our prayers, we're not going back and 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 trying to say, well, did I pray it well enough? Did I pray it good enough? Was it better than last time? Believe it or not, God can even understand those kinds of prayers that are great gooder than the last time. <laughs> you know, we, we've talked about this before. We've, we've talked about how the way in which we come to God. And it is helpful for us to understand theology better so that when we make our approach to God the way we think about who He is and His character and His nature and, and the, 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 the unity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We can be helped in those things. And as our mind is informed, our hearts can be inflamed. We can worship more deeply, more intimately. But in the ways that we don't understand those things, we should not shy away from entering into prayer and worship understanding that he is a loving father just like uh, not just like better than any earthly father I I have a a, my youngest child is under two years of age right now can hardly say anything makes a lot of noise (laughs) he says dada dada and my heart melts. He could even say something that sounds like dad-dad and not be dad-dad, and I'll take it.
1: <laughs>
0: I'll own it. You can call me that if you want. Just not my "mama." That's the only one that doesn't get the facts. <laughs> Somebody else gets that, right? I, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give it up. Why? Right because he's a, he's a baby and. And he's trying to communicate with me. I'm taking all of that in. And I'm an earthly sinful father. Mm-hmm. To use the words of Jesus, how much more does our Heavenly Father receive even the broken baby talk prayers that we all offer to Him? So hear me in this. It's not it's a tool to help, not a chain to enslave. So again, we have to cross that one off the list. Is our prayer going to be received based on how well we pray? No. Even our prayers must be sanctified by the blood of Jesus and His active obedience and prayer to the Father for us and in our place. No, our assurance for being heard and our confidence that our prayers will be answered and we will be received. And not only that we will be received, but that we might receive those things that we are asking for. It's not based on us, it's not based on how well we
1: pray, it's not based on
0: how good we've been today, or yesterday, or this week, or since the last time. own promises to hear and to answer the prayers of his people. So that if he does not hear, but rather rejects, if he does not answer, but rather stiff arms his people, What is in question is actually the hallowedness of his own name. His own kingdom and his own will being done on earth as it is in heaven. So that when we pray for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory we are reminding God not that he needs reminding. We are participating in that same kind of intercession that Moses was so famous for participating in. And we are reminding ourselves that God answering our prayers is not predicated upon our goodness, but on his. Have asked is not only in that Jesus instructed us to pray for things that we have already seen are within God's will, for there's nothing that we're praying in the Lord's Prayer that is against God's will, but also so that we do not err by falling into what James spoke of in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. It says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? that your passions are at war within you, you desire and do not have, so you murder you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. This is a definition of worldliness. The definition, actually, Satanism. Satanism is a pursuit of self at all costs. It is centered on an axis that is completely selfishly aligned. But more than that, when we end our prayer by saying, Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory, we are making an argument that the force of our prayers is not based in us, but in God, in His own self, in His promises, in His character, in His nature, His desires for what is to come to the world, namely, His name, His kingdom, and His will. Will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. As I said, we are participating in that same kind of intercession that Moses was famous for participating in. We can see it in Exodus chapter 32, verses 11 to 14. You turn there if you want, or you can look at it later. But it says this Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent that he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Then Moses says to God, turn from your burning anger and lament for this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring, as the stars in heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will bring to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. This is not the only time that Moses will stand before the Lord and essentially say, Lord, you cannot do this. And the reason is because it will bring your own name into question. Now, many of these parts of the Old Testament are included for us to see that God was never going to completely abandon or destroy His people. They're also given there to us to show us that God works through means. And one of the means that God works through is the prayers of His people. And God worked through the prayers of Moses. But Moses' argument was not merely have mercy. But his argument was to the Lord, have mercy for your name's sake. For your name's sake, have mercy. For the sake of your name, have mercy. We need to understand that for our own good, not that God needs arguments, but for our own good, Our petitions need arguments. We need to understand why we have the right to ask for the things that we are asking for and why we should expect that those things will be done. The Westminster Catechism teaches on the Lord's Prayer, the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer, asking what does the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer teach us it says, The conclusion of the Lord's Prayer, which is, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Teaches us to enforce our petitions with arguments, which are to be taken not from any worthiness in ourselves or any other creature, but from God, and with our prayers to join praises, ascribing to God alone eternal sovereignty, omnipotency, and glorious excellency. In regard whereof, as he is able and willing to do this. so we by faith are emboldened to plead with him that he would, and quietly to rely upon him that he will fulfill our requests, and to testify this, our desire and assurance, we say, Amen. We add argument to our prayer. And this is what this does, because we are saying that the reason that God should answer our prayer is not because of what is good in me. It's not because Pastor Mike prayed it or Pastor Joel. It's not because someone else uh, prayed the same way and we're trying to pray that way too. It is because God's own name, His kingdom and His will are in question. He has promised to hear and answer the prayers of His people. He has promised to take care of his children, so that if he were to deny our daily bread, if he were to somehow put back upon us the guilt and stain of our sins that Jesus has paid for, if he were to somehow go against these things, he would be going against his own name. He would be going against his kingdom. His kingdom would not stand, he would fall, because it would be a kingdom divided upon itself. And his will, which is what? That the praise of his glorious grace would be exalted above all things would fail. And if the will of God was to not come the fabric of the universe itself would come to So our petitions are enforced by reminding ourselves that the answer to our prayers belongs to the one to whom it belongs,
1: the kingdom.
0: The answer to our prayers belongs to the one to whom belongs, the power. The answer to our prayers belongs to the one to whom all glory is due. How do you conclude your prayer? Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. That is, we are asking of you, O God, because as our King, having power over all things, you are both willing and able to give us all that is good, because not we, but your holy name, should so receive all glory forever. Why? Because when the answer comes... We don't need to say, you know, that's because of how good I was. But now, we are able to say, with every blessing in the Lord, this was completely and totally because of the goodness. of my We're going to end there today. I wanted to go further today. I mentioned to you that I wanted you to keep in mind a cheerful and joyful vigil. And so I'm just, instead of expounding where I was going to expound, we're going to stop here, but I'm going to draw your attention and your remembrance to Jesus' parable of the ten virgins. Remember the parable, yes, the ten virgins who were awaiting the bridegroom and all ten had lamps but five forgot to get oil for their race. And night fell, and the bridegroom came. And five were distraught because they didn't have oil. And they went out into the city to try and find oil, but everyone had already gone in to the wedding party, and they couldn't buy any oil, or people had shut, shut up shop. Because if it's already dark, then everyone who needed oil should have got it already the five who had oil in their lamps were able to go to the party. Now why is that? It's because when they got to the party and they'd stand at the outside of the house and they would come to see who was there, they would need to be able to lift their lamp to their face to show that they were known by those who were on the inside and thereby gain entrance into the party. You had no lamp, or oil in your lamp to lift up a light to your face that no one can see who you were. You could claim to be anybody, but unless they knew that you were known by those who were inside the party, it was too dangerous to go to the outskirts of the property and to open up the gates so that you could come in in case you okay. someone should not handle. And so Jesus tells this parable. And at the end of it he says, uh, speaking of the kingdom of heaven which will be coming, he says, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour, meaning the day or the hour of the coming, the parousia, the advent.
1: So the
0: question becomes, how can we be like the five virgins? Kept oil in their lamps and not be like the oil for five foolish virgins that did. You remember the story as well when they realized that night had fallen, those that didn't have oil tried to ask those that had oil to get it to them. And they said, No, sorry, you're out of luck because if we gave you what we have, we wouldn't have enough to go uh, to the party. And so the question is, how can we do this? And I just merely wanted to say to you. It's interesting. This this comes from Matthew 25. The very next chapter in Matthew 26, Jesus will go with his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane. He'll say something to them there. What would he say? He would say, watch and pray. Watch and pray. And we know the disciples fell asleep. They fell asleep. They were tired. Jesus would come and say, could you not tarry with one hour? To watch and
1: pray. How
0: can we watch and pray? How can we be vigilant? How can we be like the five virgins that kept oil in their land? I would say that it is actually it is through prayer that we maintain this. We consume the Word of God, we take in the Word of God, we breathe out prayer to the Lord so that our soul might converse with the God who made us. But there's this interesting thing that takes place in prayer. While it is an exercise of expenditure, we expend ourselves in prayer. It is one of these uh, mysterious things that we can engage in where we are doing something, we are expending, and yet... Somehow, mysteriously, we are also receiving Some of you have experienced this through giving. This mysterious thing that happens, isn't it? Where we can, in generosity, give away of ourselves, our time, our talent, or even money. We can give it away. We are literally losing something of ourselves that belong to us. And yet, in the moment, we walk away from it more full than we were before. Somehow, in the expenditure of our generosity, we have somehow mysteriously received something intangible and intrinsic. Prayer operates much in the same way. Yes, it takes effort to pray. Yes, we expend ourselves in prayer. It takes energy to do this. And yet, as we expend that energy in prayer, something beautiful, mysterious, and mystical happens. Where we come away from that time where we have been expending, breathing out, expending our prayers, making our petitions, giving our praise to God, and yet we walk away from it more full than we were before. This, I believe, is one of the ways that we can keep hoiled in our name. As we go to the Lord in prayer, we continue to see His face. We continue to lift up His name and His kingdom and His power and His glory as well as making our petitions to Him and finding that He not only hears us, but He receives us and He answers our prayer fills that link and keeps us in that place of maintaining a cheerful and joyful vigil as we await the promise of our Messiah. Amen. 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 That was the short version.
1: Would you stand with us we pray? Yeah.
0: We are confident today, as confident that you hear us answer our prayers as we are that your word never returns void. children, that all that we will get from you is broken. As we've got to apply ourselves to this prayer taught to us by Jesus, God, I pray that it would help us. It would enliven our prayers, that it would inflame our affections for you to to know that there is a way that we can come to you. There is a way that we can approach you. There is a way that we can uh, know that our prayers are being heard. That we're praying in line with your word and with your will. That we are not asking to miss, as it says in James chapter 4. And we can, as those five wise virgins, God, keep oil in our lamp by Coming to you, allowing our lamp to be filled by you as we spend time in prayer, in devotion, in worship, in praise of who you are and what you've done for us already. What we are hoping that you will do for us today. And for that great and glorious expectant hope that we have that Jesus is coming to you. Enliven our prayers, God. Enliven our faith. Stoke the fire and fan the flame, God, of our affections, of our expectancy. Help us, God, to keep cheerful and joyful vigil as we await the return of the Messiah. In Jesus' name. Amen. So would you pray with me one last time today as our Lord taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy
1: name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our
2: daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass
0: against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom.
2: If we prepare our hearts now to come to the table uh, by reciting our confession of faith. We've already the, had a confession uh, of sin, so we prepare our hearts now for this, this part. Today, through the Apostles' Creed, uh, join me as we confess our belief in who God is and alignment who says that.